Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, to Inspired by Math. In this podcast series, I interview people who are inspired by math and who are inspiring others. I'm very pleased today to have with me Chuck Adler, physics professor and author of a new Princeton University Press book titled Wizards, Aliens, and Starships, and subtitled Physics and Math in Fantasy and Science Fiction. Welcome, Chuck. Hey, thank you. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me here. Yeah, yeah. I am um, very excited to to be talking to you about this book because, as as I'm sure you and, and all my listeners know, I'm I love math and I'm a ge- math geek, and I I wouldn't call myself a science fiction geek, but I think I probably like science fiction more than the you know average. Um, person and we were talking um chuck and i were talking a little bit before this um before we started recording and and star trek is is my favorite show and um so i think we're maybe we'll have some little side commentary um about the technology behind um star trek and whether that's feasible or not what what do you think oh i yeah i'd be very happy to talk about that i mean the uh I think the biggest things that you can the two big things about star trek or well three big things i guess are Number one, the transporter, um, which in the old the, the the transporter was kind of an interesting thing in the original series in that they didn't have money. The big reason back in the 1960s in the original series, the reason they ended into the transporter was that they didn't have actually money to sh- to shoot film of shuttlecraft taking off from the spacecraft and landing on planets and coming back up. So they had to have this way of transporting people around to the planet. And so they invented this transporter, which goes by the name of tele- you know, in science fiction is mostly called teleportation. Um, and it's kind of an interesting thing as, from a science from a scientific point of view because teleportation is kind of fun because it involves so many of these sort of basic scientific principles. It's not highly plausible because you have this issue that, you know, well, if you look at what a transporter does, you're turning people into energy, which probably means that you're killing them and then beaming them somewhere else and then reassembling them somewhere else. You've got this, also this big, this big problem involving, you know, entropy. You're tearing these people apart. Then you have to figure out how to put them back together again in a very, very distant place. And it's not exactly obvious how you do that. But it, it's a cool idea. And so you start thinking about these problems involved with it, and you think, okay, oh, okay, well, all right, what are some of the other issues involved with it? And you start thinking, oh, well, you know, that's a lot of energy to manage, because when you're turning people into energy, well, E equals MC squared, so one kilogram of mass is the same thing as, you know, 90,000 trillion joules of energy, you know, that's about as much energy as I think the U.S. uses in one hour, something, something out of order. Hmm. You're imagining an this you're imagining this enormous amount of energy, you know, turning people into energy, you've got to manage it somehow, you've got to push them somewhere else, you've got to reassemble them. And if, you know, and 
even if you are like, if it's like, you know, you're thinking about this, well, what if it's not 100% successful, then you've probably got this huge explosion going off because you've got, you know, you're missing 1% of the energy that goes into this huge big boom. I don't know, was that very coherent, what I just said there? Yeah, yeah, so, 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 <laughs> so, 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 so that's a great story, so it's, it's it's a fun technology. It uh-huh. was one of these things that was invented, I guess, by um, by Gene Roddenberry, I think. But 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 didn't teleportation happen before? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. It's 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 a science fiction staple. Sorry. Yeah. Right. Um, right. It's a staple in 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 science fiction, and and but it but it it was probably popularized, if if that's fair to say. Yeah. By by shows like Star Trek. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um. So let's let's go back a step. I mean, you know, we'll be we'll be talking more during the next hour or so about these um, various cool technologies and you know plausible or or um, not plausible. But um, tell our listeners a little bit more about you. So I know that 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 you're you're a physics professor, and you mm-hmm. sent me um, a little bit of a bio. But 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 in your own words, tell. To tell people a little bit about your background and how it was that you got excited about physics and became a physics professor, and what's the tie-in to science fiction? Well, I, I actually um, originally I knew that I wanted to be a scientist because I started reading science fiction. Um, I discovered science fiction kind of at an early age. We, we we're just talking about Star Trek. The first science fiction that I can actually remember reading, um, which was I think something like the age of I don't know, 10, maybe even earlier. I don't, I don't remember anymore. Um, I started reading the James Blish novelizations or serialization, whatever you want to call them, the stories that he wrote based on the original series episodes. And it's, it, it's actually a little weird because I actually started reading these before I even saw the TV show. Now, I, we had, we had, and I, I don't even know why we had a copy of this in the house because I certainly didn't buy it, but my father hated science fiction. We'll get this copy of James Blish's adaptations of the Star Trek stories. And I started reading them, and I started, I started thinking, this is really neat. And then I discovered there was this TV show, now at this point, you know, the early 1970s, which was in reruns. You know, it was showing the original series. You could watch them basically almost every day. So I started watching them, and I started getting really hooked into these neat ideas, you know, you know, traveling across, you know, traveling across the galaxy, going to other, you know, meeting other intelligent alien races, you know, traveling faster than the speed of light, all these neat ideas. And that, that really made me want to be a scientist. Um, and I started getting interested in science because of these very weird, you know, ideas about science fiction. Um, I didn't want to become a physicist until I took, after I took my first physics course in high school, though. We got, I got very lucky in that case. The teacher that I had there was just this amazing physics teacher. His name was Mr. Saunders. Um, he's dead now, unfortunately. But uh, we had we had this class with him. He was just this, the best, one of the best teachers I've ever had. And he just made physics really interesting. He made it come alive. A friend of mine who went to Caltech, and um, a friend of mine who was in this class with us, who went to Caltech for his for uh, for his college, met Richard Feynman, and actually told me once that. Mr. Saunders reminded him of Richard Feynman. Hmm. Um, he was really just this amazing teacher, knew a lot about physics, was very interested in the subject, and just really fantastic teacher. We, we, we got two years of physics in high school from Mr. Saunders, 
the class loved it so much, we actually petitioned the school to give us a third year, which they did. Um, and I think something like two-thirds of the people in that class went on to careers either in physics or engineering, um, just because of the inspiration this guy gave us. That's awesome. Um, yeah. It, so it, um, so it was really good. And it, it just also tells you the importance of really good teachers early on as well, because um, if I hadn't had him, I would probably would have gone into science anyhow, but I might have gone into something other than something other than physics. So for a while, I was thinking about doing pure mathematics, for example. And um, but you know, because of this one guy, he just you know, he's point. This was when he taught physics. I, I realized this was clearly what I wanted to do, and I've never regretted it since then. Um, when I, as far as teaching went, becoming a professor of physics, um, I guess it was always kind of in the back of my mind. It, it never really became solidified until one day when I was talking with my dissertation advisor about careers post, you know, postgraduate careers. When I was working my PhD, I was talking with my advisor at one point, and I, you know, mentioned to him about several different things I was thinking about. He looked at me straight and said, you know, no, you're going to become a professor. It, it's pretty obvious. And I don't know what made him say that, but at that point, it just kind of clicked. and said, yeah, that's what I want to do. And I think it was also clear at that point that I also wanted to be someone who was, I think, more at an undergraduate college than at a big research place, um, just because I liked the kind of the, the teaching aspect of it. Even though I hadn't done a whole lot of teaching, I, it, it was something that I, I was pretty clear I wanted to do. Um, you know, it's it, it's it's interesting hearing your story because I, you know, um, I had a really good. Trying to remember if it was it was probably in high school. Really, really good physics teacher in in high school. But then when I went to college and I went to one of the you know big name universities, mm-hmm. and I had a very difficult time with physics. I was a math mm-hmm. major, and in order to get a math degree, I would have to take a bunch of physics classes, and and I ended up dropping out of mm-hmm. oh. of, of university. And I mean, not just because of physics, but it was you know I. I you know, with my tail between my legs, I have to admit that that was one of the subjects that was really hard for me. And what was difficult for me was that I would have these, you know, we'd have these problem sets to do, mm-hmm. but I didn't have any intuitive grounding in any of the problems that I was trying to solve. So, so what, what I like to tell people is I could have been off by many orders of magnitude <laughs> And I, and I would have no idea, right? It, it, it's like, you know, uh-huh. it, you know, I don't know what the mass, you know, of an atom is. And, you know, I could be off by 10 to the 10th power <laughs> or 10 to the minus 10th power, you know, several, you know, many orders of, of magnitude. And, 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 it, and I wouldn't know that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what was really hard is I never felt like I got grounded. Right. You know, and I, and I have since learned that there are different ways to teach physics and that there are ways to teach physics where you can really get grounded in the subject. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the um, it, it's interesting you mentioning that because this is it, two 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 things spring to mind when you said that. Um, number one, college teaching is such a mixed bag because the, the the basically the only thing you have to have is a doctorate to become a professor at college. You have to have a doctorate in the subject, and most places. You know, if you want to get tenure, you're going to do research. You're not actually going to be focused on teaching. And so the teachers you get are very, very much a mixed bag. 
you know, some of them are excellent and some of them are just miserable. And it sounds like you had, you had kind of experiences with, with some of the miserable ones because um, one of the duties is to make sure that the students are actually learning the material. Um, you know, and a lot of the, a lot of faculty in a lot of places don't take that all that seriously. Um, and we're not taught how to teach. This is something you actually, you know, as a faculty member, presumably you've spent the last five, six, seven years of your life when you're getting your PhD doing research, and maybe you've done a postdoc for another three years and learned how to do research after that. But you're, you know, most faculty members, most physicists especially, because you know, arrogance runs very deep among a lot of physicists, will say, well, gee, you know, I, I, I did physics, and physics is really hard, and teaching can't be that difficult compared to it. And so I'm, I'm going to become a good, I'm going to be a good teacher because, you know, nothing is hard compared to physics. And that is the most wrong thing in the world. Teaching is really difficult compared to physics. Teaching well, teaching students well is actually the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. And learning how to teach well is just very, very, very hard. Much harder than I think doing research in these sciences is. Right, right. No, I, I, I believe it. And I, and, and I can, I can see just, you know, I can, I can hear in your voice and I can read in your book how you are passionate about the subject and passionate about the, the, the elementary aspects of the subject. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you um, about the book. So let, let's, let's mm -hmm. rewind sure. a little bit. And in case it's not um, obvious at this point what the book is about, okay. why, don't, why don't you tell us what the book is about? And I'm going to ask you who the audience is. Sure. Um well, the book itself is um, the book itself was meant to be something a little bit like other books. There are books out there like the, the physics of Star Trek and the physics of superheroes and the physics of Christmas and all these sorts of things. Um, this book was meant to be at a little bit higher mathematical level than those were because when I looked at it, when you read through these books, you know, the, I like I like these books. Um, I actually haven't read Physics of Star Trek, but I've read um, one or two similar things to it. And you look at these books, and they present these nifty scientific ideas, black holes and time travel, faster than light travel. Um, but they present them in a fairly general way. And it's sort of, they, they present sort of these nifty ideas of physics, you know, and, and these sort of weird out-of-these-world ideas about physics. But they don't do it in a very quantitative way. They, they, they talk a lot about the sort of general principles of them, but they don't go through a lot of the... They don't go through a lot of the the, the sort of the, the mathematical background that you need to kind of really understand them. And so, what I wanted to provide was was a book at a slightly higher level. You know, not nothing that involved an enormous, a really high level of mathematics, but something that was a little bit higher level that people could get a, get a better sense of what was going on. And so, in some sense, you, you you're talking about a little bit about who the book was aimed for. In some sense, I wanted to write a book for the interested fan who wanted to go a little bit deeper into these ideas than, than what a lot of the other books provided for. To some extent, also, I wanted to write a manual for people who were interested in writing science fiction, a resource that they could actually go into and say, well, I want to write a story about life on this world that we've, you know, we, this world we've just discovered, but how do I actually design this world? How do I actually make sure that everything that I'm writing is scientifically consistent? I want them to get out there, how do I design a starship that's actually going to take them out there in a reasonable amount of time? 
you know, how do I actually put, how do I actually put together the story in such a way that it's scientifically accurate? And one of the things about that is that a lot of the books talk about the nifty way out there ideas, string theory, or again, black holes, or things like that. But that's ignoring the fact that most science fiction, you know, even though it has these kind of nifty far out ideas in there, most science fiction, the really good science fiction stories also rely on a grounding of the physics that we already know. Most of the stuff you need in order to make a plausible story is already contained in Newton's laws of motion or the theory of, you know, or, or the theory of relativity, if you want to talk about star travel or, um, you know, the idea of a the ideas of thermal physics, the idea of the Earth, you know, if you want to talk about planetary, you know, planets and how you design a planet to make it support life, the idea of the balance of radiation from, you know, from the sun hitting the Earth, radiating away from the Earth into space, and how that determines the planet's temperature. So, so these, I, sorry, go ahead. So, so let me play devil's advocate here. Mm-hmm, sure. So if I were a science fiction writer, mm-hmm. why would I care? about whether the science is plausible or not? Well, because you have that word science in the title. Um, if science fiction, at least in my mind, it, it's a philosophical issue with me. Maybe, you know, maybe this is not, I'm sure, I know that everyone doesn't feel the same way, but it's a philosophical issue with me. Is that you've got that word science in the title. I guess the question is, if, you know, what is science fiction for in some sense? If you want, if you want me to get philosophical about it, um, my feeling about that is the best science fiction, the stuff that I've enjoyed at least the most. And you know, here I can't speak for everyone else, but the stuff I've enjoyed the most is the stuff that actually looks at the implications that scientific discoveries and technological advancements have. Um, not just in the stories where people go out to the Alpha Centauri and I don't know. Uh, I, I well, you know, not not. Uh, I I mean, I, I like I like kind of, I like kind of these sort of adventure stories where we have to fight off the aliens who are trying to invade the Earth or whatever. But I think the more interesting ones are the ones that actually look at the implications of science. Well, let me give you one example. We were talking about Star Trek earlier on. Um, one of my absolute favorite episodes of Star Trek um, was the Star Trek: The Next Generation episode. Measure of a man. Are you familiar with the episode? Um, if you if you re- tell me uh, a little it, bit of the plot, it may it, come back to me. Okay. If you remember from the from um, the Next Generation, we have the science officer on the Enterprise D or whatever it is is Data, who is an android. He's a, you know he's a fully functioning um, he's a fully functioning human shaped robot. Um, who, you know, artificially intelligent, what have you, who is in many, in some ways, uh, very, very smart. Um, you know, he's, he's, you know, he basically, you know, he looks and acts more or less, you know, like, like, you know, like a sentient being, like, you know, uh, a human more or less. Um, the episode involves a, an, a scientist who wants to, I think, dissect him, take his brain apart study him and then put him back together again, try to figure out what makes him tick. And so he's gotten orders from Starfleet that allow him to do this. 
and he comes aboard the Enterprise to do this. And Captain Picard basically says, well, no, wait. He said, one of my crew members, you can't do that. You can't take him apart to try to study what he's made of. Mm-hmm. And so there's a trial on board the Enterprise uh, with a representative from Star Trek, uh, Star, uh, Star, uh, Starfleet, trying to decide if Data has human rights the same way that any other alien species does. And they appoint Picard as, I think, his advocate, and they appoint, right, uh, they appoint um, the first officer, uh, William Riker, as the, um, as the prosecuting attorney, so to speak. Right. And so there are these arguments on both sides about whether Data is actually, you know, actually an intelligent being. And I found that very compelling. Um, because this is, uh, you know, they, they, it was very intelligently written. They, it was not one of these episodes where they rely on this sort of techno babble sort of stuff. It was just very simply stated is, you know, what rights does this sapient, artificially intelligent thing that we constructed, that we built, for, you know, does he have the same rights as any other, as any other member of the Federation does? And I found that, I, I, you know, I, I thought that was just a great episode because it deals with, the philosophical implications that scientific advancement has. Right. And okay. So, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I I think that is, I think that's yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, you know, I was also going to make the point that the value of caring about, you know, whether the science is plausible or not is, you know, like in the example we've been talking about with the transporter, mm-hmm. is it would be very convenient, right? Whenever anybody's in trouble if they right. could transport themselves, you know, back to the enterprise. But they, I uh-huh. think they, they, they do make an effort to not make it be that easy. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause they, they're off, they're often things like they can't transport through a forest field or something like that. Um, I, I will say that the transporter brings up another kind of issue though. with one of the other episodes of the next generation. Um, my thing about science fiction is not necessarily that they get the science entirely correct, but that they play by they play fair. I guess is, is more um, a thing that that I care about is that okay, well maybe the science isn't completely accurate. It is science fiction after all, not science, you know, not 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 a Nova special or whatever. Um, but I do care that they play at least consistently. One thing which bugged me about Star Trek and Star Trek the Next Generation was that there was this one particular episode where there's a transporter malfunction and Captain Picard is regressed to a 10-year-old boy. I, did you see that episode? I don't – it was like fourth or fifth season. I don't. That, that, that sounds vaguely familiar, but, right. but, but, but I can imagine. Okay. And, there, you know, the, the plot was – I don't remember what the plot was. There's somebody trying to take over the Enterprise. And Picard, as a 10-year-old boy, has to organize the kids in the Enterprise to repel the invader or something like that, because all the adults have been taken over and the kids aren't viewed as a threat or whatever it was. There was some some plot involved in that. But, okay, so you step back and you think for a moment about this. Wow. We can make people younger with the transporter. This is the fountain of youth. You know, obviously, transporter mm-hmm. technology isn't that expensive. They're doing it all the time on the Enterprise. They're transporting people around all the way they want to. So what is to prevent us from using a transporter basically to make people immortal? You can take people as they're getting older and make them artificially younger. And this is an accident, 
but you know, seriously, accidents can't. You can people can figure out how these accidents happened. So why isn't why is old age a problem in the Federation anymore? Why, why haven't why don't they use the transport to cure all illnesses, cure death, do what you know as far as that goes? And it always bothered me whenever I watch an episode beyond that point because it was never brought up again. You know, they, they did this thing. It was never brought up again. As far as I can tell, it was never brought up again in any of the later episodes, in any of the later series. I didn't, we did, we discussed this. I actually had stopped watching at some time early on in um, Deep Space Nine. But did you keep what you, you watched, I guess, uh, you said you, you were a fan of, um, Voyager, right? Yeah, Voyager and, and, and also the, the, the classic, right? The original right. Star Trek series. But was this point ever brought up in Voyager? That you could use transporter technology to make people younger? I don't recall, but um, I've been watching reruns, and I still have oh another three <laughs> seasons um, to go. I mean, it, it's not it's not ringing a bell on mm-hmm. on, on 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 the new series on, on Voyager. But all right, so but let me ask you. So related mm-hmm. to this, so do, how much in general do you think science fiction writers and movie makers care about whether their ideas <laughs> are, are plausible or not? Well, there's it's kind of three different three different. Uh, issues here. Um, there's, and they all actually have kind of somewhat different standards, uh, different different answers to that. Uh, movies, typically not at all. <laughs> there's some big exceptions to that, but movies, generally speaking, not at all. Um, TV shows, it's a mixed bag. It depends on the TV show, and I think it depends very much on the writer for a particular episode. I will say that I'm inclined to give science fiction on TV more leeway simply because the number of scripts that writers have to write every year. You're writing, what, 13 to 20-odd scripts per season, and you've got to churn out one sure. a week. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm inclined to give it a little bit more leeway. Science fiction novelists tend to be a lot more, uh, tend to pay a lot more attention to the science than, than I the other two. Movies are just awful in general. Um, I, I had mentioned before, before we started the interview that I, I, I wanted to... Um, Take a, mention, say a little bit about Star Trek, uh, the recent Star Trek reboot movies. Um, if you look at, for example, um, the movie um, Star Trek Into Darkness, um, I, I rented it recently and, and just watched it a few weeks ago um, because people were saying good things about it. I thought it was god awful, um, not not necessarily because of the plot, but because. Whoever was writing the movie, the, the, the script for this, maybe it was several people, I don't know, but they were not paying attention to what they wrote because they, when they wrote these things, well, okay, have you seen the movie? I have not. Okay, um, this will probably spoil a few things in there, but they, 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 make, they make use of what, I guess, from the first movie was called trans-warp technology. And, you know, it's again, it, you know, I'm, I am one of these people who get a little upset by, by these things when I see them. So I'm, I'm going to, I speak kind of vehemently about this stuff. But, I, you know, it's stuff that I, I do care about because um, this trans-warp technology is a combination of warp drive and transporter. And so early on in the movie, a character named, I think, John Harrison who's played by Benedict Cumberpatch, um, uses this transwarp technology to transport himself from Earth to the main planet in the Klingon Empire pretty much instantaneously. That's handy. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice thing to be able to do. Um, 
Now you start thinking about this, however, and some things start popping up to you. You start thinking about some things here. First of all, okay, ignore the, let's, let's ignore the science for the moment behind that. Okay, you can do this. Well, first of all, hitting a moving planet from a distance of many light years away, if you start thinking about the precision, you need to be able to do that. You know, it's not just that he does this. It's that he does this with a precision, a required precision, because he's landing on some mountaintop. You know, it shows this quick cut between, you know, he's initially standing watching this destruction he's caused on Earth, and then all of a sudden he warps away, reappears on the top of a mountaintop on the main planet of the Klingon Empire, many, many light years away. Well, if you're talking about the precision you need to do this, you're, you're hitting like a, 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 an area a few feet around. You need to do this precision because he's landing on top of a mountaintop. He makes a few feet missteps. He's tumbling down a mountainside. And so you're doing this over a distance of trillions of miles because that's the average distance between different star systems. You know, light years, a few trillion miles. Maybe you're actually doing this over hundreds of trillions of miles. So that's an accuracy of one part in a quadrillion. It's the same accuracy. To put it, put it in context, if you knew the diameter of the Earth to that same accuracy, you would know it with a precision which is basically about the size of an atom. <laughs> Let's leave that aside. Okay, so you can do that. You can transwarp yourself across light years of distances effectively instantaneously because it doesn't show any time elapsing between doing that. Well, you can do that. Why do you need starships? If you can transport yourself anywhere in Federation that accurately, what in the world do you need these big starships for? Why are you, car- why are you carrying people around on these starships? What do you need the Enterprise for again? <laughs> okay, I hear you. <laughs> All right. And then, then the whole big thing about this is that he's transwarped himself to, to the, the Klingon planets because the, he's basically out of reach of the Federation at that point. The Federation is really worried about going to war with Klingon Empire, and so they, enter, they send the Enterprise in a secret mission to extract him without the Klingons knowing about it, all this, you know, and, and I'm thinking, looking there, oh my God, if you can put a person on the main planet of the Klingon Empire using technology, you can put a bomb there. You've got <laughs> antimatter. You've got antimatter technology. You can bomb them back into the Stone Age from a distance of light years away. Why are you worried about them? Okay. You know, right. and, <laughs> sorry. All right, all right. I'm, so I'm let, getting, let, let me... Let me getting, oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. I, I know I'm getting very vehement about this, but it just bugged me watching this, that they're thinking that, you know, that, that this whole plot is premised on them having to go out there and extract them without anyone else knowing about it. But the Klingons are clearly not a threat at this point. If they can do that, they can do anything they want to the Klingons without any fear of retaliation. Right, okay. Um, so right. So, so sorry, yeah. yeah, so that's that's kinda of like sort of the dark side of not paying enough attention to Right, yes. This to, is why you I think this is actually why you have to pay attention to these things when you write it, because otherwise Right, okay. Um oh, but, sorry, but, let me, right, but let let me ask you Right. So, 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 so far, right. We, we, you, you've, you've given a bunch of um, examples of things that are not plausible. So, yeah. So, so what, 
So from from Star Trek, from other science fiction, from fantasy, I know this is also a mm-hmm. book on fantasy and my personal bias is that I, I'm not that interested mm-hmm. in fantasy, but I'm sure Definitely. plenty of listeners are. So from any of these areas, what, what are some cool science fiction things that could actually someday become science fact? Okay. Um, I think that I think that something we are probably going to see within our lifetime is the discovery of alien life, um, life hmm. on other planets. I, I, I really hope it. And of all of the far out science fiction things, this seems to be to be the most plausible one right now. Um, I, I this this is actually this is actually a wonderful time to be alive as far as that goes because we are in the golden age of exoplanet discovery. We we have discovered something like. When I was born, we had no idea that there were any. You know, we thought there might be planets circling stars out, not with the warrant to sign out. You know, exoplanet stars circling other st- planets circling other stars. We thought there might be, but we didn't have a good enough technology to de- to detect them. Nowadays, the planets in the solar system, the planets circling our sun, are a tiny minority of all the planets that we have discovered. We, I think, we know something like a thousand other planets circling other stars. And the technology that we have gets better by leaps and bounds. One of the biggest problems actually in writing the book, when I wrote the sections about the detection of alien life, was that things kept on changing. I think that the last edit I made on that chapter was like weeks before the book actually had to be put in, had to be sent in, simply because um, everything changed so rapidly. We had this, we, you know, the Kepler telescope was out there detecting planets. It detected something like 1,200 planet candidates out there. And of them, a fair, you know, there's a, um, at least I think, I, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but there are a fair number of them, I think at least 10 or 12 that are discovered, which are within the habitable zone and are of a right size that could potentially be, you know, uh, potentially have Earth-like life on them. And our detection methods get better. We've actually detected atmospheres on these other planets. And I think soon technology is going to be good enough that we're actually going to be able to detect the signs of life on these planets, you know, basically from atmospheric constituents. Now, it may not be intelligent life. We may only be discovering alien bacteria or alien plant life. But still, that's, I mean, that's one of the biggest, you know, if we can detect life that's not on the Earth, I think that's going to be one of the biggest scientific discoveries ever made. I don't think Set, the, the SETI project has, has mm-hmm. found any... No. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, so... Right. So, so yeah, so that's a, that, that, that's a caveat. Sure. And, you know, I have always thought for years and years and years that it would be pretty arrogant of the human race to mm-hmm. assume that we are the only intelligent life out there. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, you know, so it's one of my personal beliefs that, right. I mean, the, the, the universe is so vast yeah. and yeah, it's like, it's like how, how could we come to believe that we are the only intelligent forms of life out there? Oh, oh, absolutely. I, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, the tricky part about intelligent life and detecting intelligent life and talking with them um, is the issue of the lifetime. Um, this is 
I, I was very careful what I said about detecting life because um, the way we have the techniques we have now to detect, detect alien life don't really require them to be talking with us. If you, if you look at it's kind of an interesting historical thing. If you look at the at SETI and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the big SETI decades were the 1960s through the 1980s, when radio telescopes were the you know really at the forefront of astronomy. And there was a, there was a, um, people you know uh, Morrison back in the 1960s did this calculation that said you know essentially that with radio you can communicate over interstellar distances. And so we, people had these big radio telescopes, and we were seeing these wonderful things in the cosmos, pulsars and um, active galactic nuclei and quasars and things like that. And, you know, people realized, oh, we could use these to detect intelligent life as well. And so they started looking for them. And I think, I think there's a decent shot that we will actually detect intelligent life via this technique. But the problem comes in that we that in order to do that we actually have to have someone who's trying to signal us as well. That's right. Whereas they, they, they need to be gonna, they want they they need to want to be found. They need to want to be found. Um, and one of the tricky the other tricky part um, is that the the issue with intelligent with intelligent life in the universe is that you can define what intelligence constitutes at least detectable intelligence concepts very easily. They have to have radio. Now, this is a tricky issue because if you look at human beings, we've had radio technology for about 100 years now. And so mm -hmm. what that means is that humanity is detectable via its radio, you know, via, via our radio missions um, for about 100 years, meaning that civilizations, you know, radio waves travel at the speed of light, any advanced civilization within a hundred light years could tell, in fact, that the Earth had radio, you know, was an advanced intelligent civilization by this type, by this criterion. Whereas anything outside that shell couldn't. And so, if we got a broadcast back today, we could be, you know, we, we'd know that they were actually within within a hundred light years of us. Um, so you have this issue. And I, I, uh, you're, I, I think you're, you're familiar with the Drake equation for estimating the number of alien intelligences? No, I'm not. Okay. The Drake equation is an equation sometimes called the Green Bank equation that a guy named Frank Drake invented back in the 1960s in which he tried to use it to estimate the number of advanced alien civilizations that are out there for us to contact. Um, he expressed it in terms of basically a series of products of numbers. Um, the rate at which he, oh, I'd have to, I, people do it different ways. Carl Sagan had, a, the most famous version, I think, was on the TV show Cosmos, when Carl Sagan used this to estimate it. Um, and so you, you basically, and you multiply all these numbers together. Um, the last, you multiply by something like, um, the rate at which stars are formed times the number of planets on average which each star has multiplied by the fraction of those planets which are neither too far away from the sun nor too close to the, nor clo too close to its star to have life times the fraction of those planets that actually develop life times the fraction of those planets that develop intelligent life ultimately times the light the average lifetime 
of an advanced technological civilization. The problem with that equation is that the only number we actually know for certain, the only number that was known for certain back in 1962 when Drake formulated it originally, was the rate at which stars form, which is about 10 per year in, the, in our galaxy. And every other single number was unknown. We now actually have a better estimate on the number of, on the average number of planets circling a star. And in fact, we may even now have a better estimate, have a, have a decent estimate on the fraction of those planets that are neither too far away from the star nor too close to the star because of all these exoplanet discoveries. But we still don't know what fraction of those planets are actually going to develop life, what fraction are going to develop intelligent life, and what the average length of an, the, the, you know, the, the lifetime of an, of an advanced technological civilization is going to be. So I agree with you. I think it would be very arrogant to think that we're going to be the only intelligent race out there. The tricky part all comes back to that, that value L, the lifetime of the average civilization. Because if you think about it, this is, um, think, about a, uh, think about standing out in a dark meadow, a meadow which is completely dark. And you see in the meadow fireflies. You're in the middle, in the middle of the meadow in the middle of summer, and you see fireflies flickering on and off. And occasionally you see two fireflies flick on and off at the same time, or one firefly flick on and, the, and another one flick on while the first one's on and then off again. This is kind of analogous to the situation that we're in. Um, the number of times you see two or more fireflies flick on and off at the same time depends on two things. Number one, the rate at which the fire, the rate at which the fire, uh, at which the fireflies are flickering on and off, right? How many times per second you see them? And number two, the length of time that they stay on, the longer they're going to stay on, the more the chance is the two are going to be on simultaneously. Do you see what I'm saying there? Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's kind of an analysis situation we're in. The length of time is kind of the length of time that, that our advanced technological civilization is going to last. The rate is basically how many of these advanced technological civilizations kind of appear, kind of, you know. And we don't know what, you know, we don't know really either one of those. We have an example of one advanced technological civilization, if you call world culture, this technological civilization on Earth, it's been around for 100 years, but that's a t- so far, that's a tiny little fraction of the time that, that, that life has been on this planet. So, you know, conditions in the galaxy have been such that life on any given planet inside of our galaxy probably could have evolved any time within the last billion years. So if civilizations last for 100 years or 500 years or 1,000 years and we kind of peter out again and die off, then the odds of actually are contacting one are pretty small because you've got billions of years. You know, if if a civilization, you know, if the Alpha Centaurians, right, developed a highly advanced technological civilization a billion years ago, but it only lasted for 10,000 years, we're never going to see them, right? We're never going to detect that they were there because they, you know, they're, they're long gone and dead. Or if they developed a billion years from now or even a million years from now, the odds are pretty good. We're not going to contact them either because, you know, and this is as good as a mile. And you've got all of, you've got all of this galactic time. You've got all of, you've got all of time in which to develop these civilizations. 
but they may, you know, but if they only, if they only last for a short period of time, then the odds are pretty good. We'll never actually talk to them, which I find very depressing, by the way. Okay. All right. So it's not not a fun thing to think about, but. Okay. All right. So, right. So, so, so in in a nutshell, you, you believe that, that there are alien civilizations and, and that in our lifetimes, in our lifetime, we may, we may actually get to meet them. Maybe. I think the odds are against us. I, I will say that I think the odds are I think the odds are good for us detecting life on other worlds. I think the odds are not so great for us detect, detecting an advanced alien civilization on other worlds. Okay. Um, just because of the issues of just because of the issues of cosmological time. Okay. And not yeah. Go, sorry. Go ahead. All right. So I, so I'm curious if if you have another example or two of implausible or, or sorry of, of of science fiction that is plausible and maybe science fact. Um, sure. It's an, I'll give you an example that didn't make it into the book, although um, it may be make, may, might that I, I it may make it into the sequel if I ever, if, I, if I write the sequel. But um, I think I I think very strongly that we're going to see artificial intelligence probably sometime within our lifetime. Um, the reasoning behind that is that I can't see any reason why we can't <laughs> develop it. Um, I, you know, this is this is kind of a silly thing maybe to say about it, but um, we know more and more and more about how the brain works every year, and we I think we know more and more and more about how how intelligence works, and we have this one example of of you know intelligence evolved in, evolved you know, through evolution, which kind of you know fits inside of our skulls, but every year computer technology gets better and better and better, and you know, um, and I think I, I think it's probably only a matter of time before we actually start dealing with um, intelligent computers, intelligent, you know, artificially intelligent devices, for the simple reason that I can't see any laws of physics that would prohibit it. Um, as far as I can tell, our brain works by, you know, very well understood physical principles. And I think we're getting to the point where we actually understand what intel. We're not maybe there yet, but we're getting to the point where I think we're going to understand what intelligence means well enough to be able to create another system that is, in fact, intelligent. I, you know, I'm saying that kind of kind of a stilted way of saying it, but I, I think I get point across. Right. So so data in Star Trek or the, 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 right. the holographic doctor. You're right. Exactly. Uh, might might actually be, be you know, might, you yeah. know, might, might, might become real. I mean, I remember right in, in the seventies and in the eighties when, mm-hmm. when I was getting interested in computers, there was a, mm-hmm. a lot of hoopla around oh, yeah. artificial intelligence. And as far as I can tell, it didn't go very far. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this is, this is one thing that makes me, that makes me doubt it a little bit. Um, you had, yeah, you had, uh, one of the things that got really, you ever read a book called Gödel Escherbach? Yep. Yep. Uh, I have, I have the book on my shelf. It's a great book. Yeah, I love the book as well, and that's actually the book that got me one of the books that got me really interested in mathematics when I was uh, I don't know thirteen, fourteen, something like that. But um, yeah, I've and you know this is one of these things where yeah, there was a lot of hoopla back then, and one of the things that I always that always bothered me about AI research back in the eighties was that the people who were doing it were talking a lot about building computer systems to simulate the brain without paying a whole lot of attention to how the brain really worked. 
Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, you had you had a lot of these books. Um, I, I love Gödel Escher Bach, by the way, and I, I actually am very I like Douglas Hofstadter's other writings as well. Um, but when you look at when you look at the work that 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 you know that, that these people who were, were doing back then, um, it seemed to be that they were not that they were really ignoring some very interesting findings from you know neurology and neuroscience and and um, you know, and brain science about how brains really work in order to make these sort of constructs on how they thought brains worked. And um, that's, I, I think that that was ignoring a large part. I think people are coming back to it right now. Again, I, I don't know this for sure. You know, it, it may be that we're, we've just completely lost interest in trying to create artificial intelligence, and so it'll never happen simply because we don't really want to do it. Um, and and I agree with you also that we've made very little progress on it. It's just that I guess my feeling is there's no reason we can't do it. There's, there doesn't seem to be a reason. There doesn't seem to be a particularly good reason why 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 it can't happen. Well, you you know, my hunch is that where it is happening is in business applications like mm-hmm. you know data mining and understanding right. the stock yeah. market and where, where there's a lot of money to be made. I think people have some very sophisticated, you know, mathematical modeling right. that, you know, one could argue, you know, to, to, to be artificial intelligence. Perhaps. Although you have that very elusive issue of, of self-awareness and what that actually means. And I don't know what that means, unfortunately. So it's, it's yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. I think uh, another thing that I'd like to see, although I'm kind of negative about it in the book, at least, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I'm, I think that there's a bare possibility that we might see something like the space elevator um, happening. Mm-hmm. That would be actually very, a very far out thing. Um, I discussed it in the book. I'm, I'm actually a little dismissive of it in the book. But in fact, it'd be a pretty cool thing if it actually ever happened. Um, I think it is on the borderline of what could and could not be feasible. I mean, this idea of building an elevator out into space—you know, starting right. with a geosynchronous satellite, kind of you know, winding one end of it down and the other end of it back up to space—I um, would love to see it because it seems like it'd be one of the very few feasible means we have of putting stuff into space relatively cheaply. Um, you know, I'd love to see space tourism take off to a point where anyone could afford it. Right. Again, it's one of these things where I'm kind of, I, I have no idea. It's one of those things which seems to be right on the borderline of being possible, but I don't know which side of the borderline it comes up on. There's nothing, there's nothing in the laws of physics. You know, we, we, you know, we put stuff into space all the time, right? So we can obviously do that. But making it economical that, so that anyone could actually do it, I have no idea. It's one of these things which seems marginally possible if people were willing to invest a lot of money into it with, you know, with the idea that, that it, you know, it could possibly fail and, and not work out. But I, I have no idea which side of the borderline it belongs on. Hmm. Okay. That'd be a cool thing. Though. That'd be, I, that, that, that'd be, yes. So, I so let me completely switch gears on you sure. because we, we are, we, you know, we, we are, um, getting not not too far from um from having been on this um call for for about an hour i oh. want to get um your sense on how teachers and students 
could use this book to you know increase their 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 motivation into learning more math and more physics i mean my you know my my first impression and i think i am I, I think I, you know, I've said this before, right? In, in this interview, I'm a little bit squeamish about <laughs> physics because I because I don't feel like I have a good mm-hmm. grounding in it. So when you say, and I think at some point in the book, maybe in the introduction, mm-hmm. you say, well, this you know, this book is um, suitable for people, you know, for students who have, you know, basic high school algebra mm-hmm. or something to that effect. And and sure enough, looking at the equations, flipping through the book, right there, there are not hairy, complicated mm-hmm. equations beyond algebra. But I think, as you said earlier in the interview, there is some conceptual mm-hmm. understanding. It's like, yes, I, I recognize this formula. It's a parabola. So what? Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, that, that, that doesn't help me to understand conceptually why, you know, if somebody, you know, I guess it's the classic cannonball thing, right? You shoot a mm-hmm. cannonball and it has a parabolic path. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, you know, it's related to a formula, you know, Y equals AX squared plus B, mm-hmm. you know, or, um, you know, it could be plus BX plus C, whatever. So it's a parabola. But uh, so, so what do you think? This is kind of a big hairball of a question. What, <laughs> you know, so because, because my big interest in, mm-hmm. in what you're doing and in your book is I want to see your book in the hands of students and teachers who are saying, you know, particular teachers who are saying, you know, boy, these kids are so into fantasy and they're so Mm -hmm. into science fiction. Can I use that as a catalyst? You know, like you had the experience and you became a Mm -hmm. physics professor. Can teachers, what can teachers do to get this out to their kids? Mm -hmm. That's that's an excellent question. And obviously it's something I will actually like to happen with the book. Um, I actually I used a, a a very early version, a very early draft of the book to teach an upper level physics class um, on the science and science fiction. Um, it was um, it, I think it was successful. Um, we had a lot of I basically you know it, to some extent it's bait and switch. If, if you want, you know, if, if you if you get the idea, it's how it happened. I, I wrote the book because that's basically how it happened with me. I started reading science fiction. The science fiction got me turned on to science. That's why I became a scientist. And so, if it worked for me, I was hoping that it'll, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that it'll actually work for other people. And um, one, you know, people talk about the applications of physics to the real world, and that's great. There are a lot of books written about real-world physics. But if you start talking with people who are interested, you know, if, if you talk, what are, when you have talks with people, okay, and you start talking with people about, um, you know, there, there are a lot of topics that we talk about real-world physics about, right? Like, um, you know, I don't know, physics of, uh, physics of oil well drilling, take, you know, something like that, right? And if you talk to somebody about mm-hmm. drilling oil wells, they're not going to get that excited about it. At least my, in my experience, you're not going to get you know horribly excited about you know you know physics oil wells. But if you t- if you look at, for example, um, there's, there's, are you feel, are you a fan of the TV show Big Bang Theory? 
Yeah, I've, yeah, that's that's a fun show. Yep. Yeah, there was like one of the first, very first episodes, maybe the first one. I don't remember where you know Sheldon and the others are arguing about the first Superman movie or second Superman movie. Sorry, where Superman catches Lois Lane's arms, and they're arguing about whether Lois Lane would be killed by his catching her in his you know in his in his super strength you know super impervious arms because of that fall, and they're arguing. <coughs> sorry, and they're arguing like crazy over whether or not she would survive. And, you know, they really, really, you know, they're really into the argument. And this is a completely made up situation. So people can get, you know, people, people get very, you know, when you talk about things like the environment or the, um, you know, environment or economic policies or, you know, current events or things like that, a lot of people, I think, either will not get very excited about them or get a little bit afraid to be very excited about them because these topics are a little bit, in some sense, dangerous to deal with, if you think about it that way. Um, they, they, they hit too close to home. Whereas if you look at these topics like science fiction and fantasy, arguing about whether the transporter will work, arguing about whether Lois Lane will survive the fall into, into, into Superman's arms, arguing about whether anti-gravity is possible, about, you know, about interstellar travel, things like that. I think people feel much freer to argue about them and to think about them because these are safe topics, but they're also interesting ones. They're things you can have opinions about. They're things that actually aren't completely settled either. You know, they're things that you can, that you can basically argue back one side or the other about and are fascinating because of that. And you so, can get very excited about them because you, I think you, you can permit yourself to get very excited about them. Right. So, so I, I think what I'm hearing is you're, you're saying basically you're writing the book that you wish you had had mm-hmm. when when you were first starting to get inspired. Right. So do you? But but I also heard you say that you taught this as an to an upper level class. Right. Th- so, that was a deliberate choice. I, I will say that um, one thing that I hadn't developed yet was, was the I wanted the students to understand Newton's laws of motion. That, that was actually before I actually went into it. Um, if I did it again, I would probably teach it as an introductory first-year seminar, um, but I would probably spend the first couple of weeks talking about Newton's laws of motion. There's, one always has to engage in these choices, I guess, um, because the book wasn't completely developed, because I didn't... Um, it wasn't fully plotted out at that point. It, it, what I taught was essentially what made it into section two of the book about about space travel, and that section is the most mathematically intense one. Right, but but so what, what I'm still trying to get at is right. So so you're thinking that that you would teach this to undergraduates? Undergraduates, yeah. Okay, absolutely. so do you think that? Well, obviously you, you're you're a college professor, and so that's that's your audience. Do you think? <sighs> that teachers can teach this in high school? I believe so. Um, I don't think, um, I think you'd have to teach it to, I think that, yes, I I believe you can, I believe you can use this for high school teaching. Um, I think that one of the ways to do it, I tried to write it in such a, I I believe that the, I believe that the mathematical level of most of the equations in the book are at a point where uh, most high school students can understand them. That being said, it's been a long time since I've been I've been in high school, so you know I, I may have misjudged that. 
Um, right. I mean, I one, I wonder, and I am, yeah. and I'm not the best person to to judge because of my my skittishness with physics. But I, I mean, I would love to, you know, you know, maybe hear some some high school physics teachers mm-hmm. or high school physics or you know, students who are, um, you know, studying physics in high school. And I'm not even sure how much physics is taught in high school anymore. I certainly had some when, mm-hmm. but I went to a very good high school. Yeah. Um, but I would like to know, you know, it, it may be that your book is a really good second book, mm-hmm. but that there needs to be a first book that creates the foundation. Quite possible. Um, I, you, you could be, yeah, you could be right about that. Um, the tricky part about all of this is the issue of space. It's a, you know, it's a 300 page book. Um, if you spend a third of the book just laying down the basic physics, then you only, you know, then you're, then you have to basically decide, well, I got to take these topics out. And it might be a good way of doing it. I don't know. Um, the book was, the book was meant to be a pop. You're, you're, you're talking directly to you're talking directly to my to my own you know basic insecurities about the book here. So you know you're you're, you're obviously hitting home here. Um, the um, what you're saying is, is absolutely right. And in fact, part of the process that I went through in writing the book was to say, okay, well, do I go really into the more basic physics here and talk about that and really develop that first, or do I just go into the science fiction and bring up the physics that's needed as I go along? And I do the latter in the hopes that people can follow along with it as, as they're reading through the book. And, you know, again, the idea hopefully was that there's enough um, text that, you know, that you can, um, you know, that, that people can actually kind of get the idea of what I'm saying, even if they don't want to go through the mathematics behind it. Right. I mean, what I mean, all I'm saying is that and, and, and we would certainly need more data is mm-hmm. I, I, I think it is, it, it is a wonderful book. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. delighted to have this conversation, and I'm not convinced that the audience is, you know, is an audience of, of, of high schoolers. And so when you say that, well, you need a you know, basic high school algebra, I think there's more to it, and, mm-hmm. and, and I, have, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is, oh, please go right ahead. One is I, think, I think it would be wonderful if you were to write a prequel <laughs> to – Right in yes in, in the spirit of movies, uh-huh. you know yes. Could you make a prequel to this book that would be another three hundred page book that would um, create the, you know connect the dots and create the the bridge and the foundation? Um, because it may be that you know college students who are studying math or physics or you know or some other branch of science they may be motivated enough to make all of the connections and they may have the background and with a prequel, mm-hmm. maybe the, maybe the younger um, kids can, can get inspired earlier. And the second thought I had mm-hmm. is I think it would be wonderful if you were to create a blog mm-hmm. where every time you wrote an article, you, it, the, the article was providing some of the background um, helping the, the kids um, who don't have the background to get to the point where they can actually understand a piece of the book. And then um, after a year or two, you could take all the blog articles and that could become your prequel. It, it's odd. You should say that because in fact, I've had actually a very, I had actually a very similar idea um, in the last couple of weeks about that because um, 
I, I think that's actually a very good idea. Um, I, I, had actually, I, I had thought about this issue about, about, the, you know, about the mathematical level of the book, and one of the things I was thinking about kind of you know, idly going over was a book, something like... Um, it, it, I don't remember exactly the title, but it, but it was something similar to what you were saying. You know, basically like you know, uh, basics of science fiction for the high school student, or basics of science fiction for the under, you know, for the whatever, you know, for the. Um, and um, we, uh, the idea being again, much more, um, you know, something like the scientific ideas of science fiction for the high school student, or something of that order. You know, that's that's a clunky title, but but you get the right. idea. But, but that's the idea, yes. Yeah, would would you know again and again taking out most a lot of the algebra there. Um, the it's a good, I think it's a very good idea. Um, and the idea of actually putting a blog together and then taking the articles from the blog and, and linking them together is not one that I had thought about. But you know, I may actually you know, use that actually if you're if, you know. If it's, a lot of people write books this way, and and I think a lot of people do it intentionally. They they say I want to write a book in a year. Um, and and a great way to test out the book is to write some articles and see what kind of feedback right. I get. Right, it's a good idea, and actually it's one it's one that I hadn't considered because you know again I am I'm of this older well not older older generation but it's it's one of the I I you know I, I was born before the web existed so it's 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 not something I naturally think of when I'm thinking about writing these articles but I, I think it is a very good one um, and it actually and it follows it actually does pretty well match lines along along which I've been thinking so. Yeah, if you don't mind. I'm actually going to. I'm going to take that up. In fact. Oh no, 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 no. In fact, I, I I hope you do. I mean, my whole interest in this series is to, you know, catalyze inspiration from people like you, who are writing inspiring books that I think really can be, you know, a wonderful catalyst. And and you know, my 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 concern is that that the people not mistake that the the machinery of the mathematics mm-hmm. is pretty simple, right? Dealing mm-hmm. with quadratic right. equations is not very difficult, but but the motivation and the, the understanding and the foundation, right. I think that's a much more delicate thing. Yeah, I, I no, I, I I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that on that point. It's you know it's one of these things also where I think that this you know this is my first book and I, I leaf through it and I think well you know. I could have done that better, or I like this, or you know, what was I thinking here, things like that. So, um, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I think I, your 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 way of putting, I think, is is very apt. It's a very delicate understanding that one has to have in terms of physics. And also, you mentioned about this issue about. I think that there actually is a certain delicacy of mind, or kind of a um, a weird sort of balancing act. Maybe I'm not making it exactly clear about your conceptual understanding versus the use of mathematics to try to understand physical phenomena and to try to understand right. what's I mean, going on here. It's, it's very clear from my experience in, in mathematics that there is a very big difference between having a conceptual understanding and being able to do well on tests that, that require you to just know formulas and manipulate formulas. Right. There, you know, I mean, there, there is some intersection. The, the people who have a conceptual mm-hmm. understanding are, are going to be able to do the abstract thinking that it takes to manipulate the formulas, mm-hmm. but but not necessarily the other way around. Right? Oh, there are certainly kids who are great at you know applying rules, but they they don't, they don't understand 
Right, absolutely. I, I agree with that 100%. And in fact, that's what we see, in fact, in We've actually been, um, we've actually, uh, if I can step out of talking about science fiction for a moment, we actually measure this at, at, at the college that I work at, um, at, at St. Mary's College in the physics department. Um, we actually have a conceptual physics exam that we give to the students, not as part of the regular class, but um, basically um, at the beginning and the end of their first semester classes to figure out how much of the concepts they've learned. Very good. Always very instructive to see what. No, that's great. Yes. Yeah, and it, and we've taken like eight years of data worth of this stuff, and um, we have hundreds of students worth of data. It's very interesting to see what actually gets them to learn the concepts, and also what you're saying is correct. The students who are good on the concepts are also good on the math, but it doesn't go the other way around. The students who are good at the math aren't necessarily the ones who are actually getting conceptual stuff well, doing learning conceptual stuff well. What's also really interesting, this is completely off topic, but what's very interesting about that um, is that the one thing that makes a difference about whether students actually learn the material or not is how you teach the class. Not who you are as a teacher. It's not how inspiring you are as a lecturer. It really just comes down to mechanics. If you have students work in groups, if you have them actually working together on solving problems and discussing the problems very actively. And if you force them, because this is not something students will want to do on their own, but if you force them to speak up in class and to talk with the, fact, the professor back and forth, and if you continually quiz them on what they're learning and learn how much they're learning somehow actively using clicker systems or some other means of actually getting the information, how much they're actually learning you instantaneously, they learn about twice as much as if you don't do as if you just lecture them by, by yourself. That's well, a really instructive thing. Well, I'll go further than that, and and as I'm talking, I am googling. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if, I, if I'll find it fast enough here, but I did a podcast mm -hmm. interview with Dave Richeson, mm -hmm. and he is um, also a professor, and I think. Um, topology is is, uh, mm -hmm. is at least one of the topics that he teaches. And one of the things, and, and he didn't invent this way of, of teaching, mm -hmm. but I mean, I would have to go back and, and listen to the, the, the podcast again. But he talks about having, and, there, and there's a name for this mode of, mm -hmm. of intellectual inquiry, but the upshot is that by the end of the semester, the mm -hmm. students in the class had written a textbook on the subject. Oh, yeah. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about. I can't remember the name of it either. It, 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 yeah, it's, it's one particular strategy for doing this, but yes. Right. So, it, yeah. So if you look up, if, if, if you or anybody else Googles at Wild About Math or, you know, does, or does the search mm -hmm. box for Dave Richeson, R-I-C-H-E-S-O-N, it's the Inspired by Math number mm -hmm. 20, um, and there's even a link uh, to an article of his, How I Teach Topology, an Inquiry-Based Learning Approach. Yes, yes, Inquiry-Based is, is, the, is the kind of the blanket name for a lot of these techniques. Right, so, but, but I mean, but, you, you know, but you're exploring, I think it's wonderful that you and, and your school are exploring that approach to how do you get beyond, right, the mode of learning where mm -hmm. the teacher, the professor professes and the students... Mm -hmm. yeah. 
somehow absorb it. I mean, I, this is this is my personal I'm, you know, little soapbox here, but this is my <laughs> pet peeve with um, you know Salcon and um, mm-hmm. and his whole you know project to revolutionize how math is taught. I think he is doing right. a remarkably wonderful thing, but he's not changing the paradigm. Right of how math is taught. I mean, he's Absolutely. he's he's a good instructor. He's very personable. People like him. People relate to him. It's a it's a it's a low stress way of learning mathematics because you could do it at your own pace. You can rewind it. You're mm-hmm. not in a rush um, to learn the material. So there's a lot of positives to his mm-hmm. approach, but it but it's the approach that that we've been using for you know for you know for right. hundred years or hundreds of years. Right. And, and people talk about the applications of it, and I agree with you. I actually tried using the Khan Academy um, uh, test in my in most recent incarnation, my introductory physics course, and I did not actually see them as a huge benefit when, after using them because they did not fit in very well with the way I was teaching the class. You know, again, I, I use clickers, if you're familiar with, with electronic clicker technology. You, know, you basically pose a question to class, they have these clickers they can click back and answer the question. Sure. Mm-hmm. But first, they actually do a lot of intensive group work discussing the question, making sure it comes out, you know, making sure that they're uh, comfortable with the answer they're going to give back. And it just didn't fit in with that paradigm very well. I mean, a lot of, you know, people talk about the uses of, of, of technology in the classroom. I think one of the worst things we've seen in recent times is this idea of electronic, you know, these massively huge electronic classrooms where teachers, you know, broadcasting out classes to, you know, thousands or hundreds of, you know, hundreds or thousands of students. And again, that's just exporting our model to the point where it's almost impossible to get any interactive feedback from anyone. Just because, right, you know, right. I think you're, I think you're, you're talking about the MOOCs, the... the MOOCs, yeah, MOOCs. And, MOOC, and MOOC, I think it's multi... multi- Massive yeah. online open course. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, um, although I think that those are evolving to the, mm-hmm. the point where where there where there can be interaction on the internet and students can get together virtually and work through um, problems and such. But you know, I'm particularly interested in how, um, and we really have gone on a, on a tangent, but I, yeah, think oh, a, God, yeah. I think it's an important <laughs> tangent. I think it's an, an yeah. important tangent. Because I have always been good at math ever since I was young. I, you know, it was like like a fish in water. It always made sense to me. I loved it. Um, you know, love the symbol manipulation, love the abstract thinking, everything there is um, about math. You know, majored in math at, at university and, and, and all of that. Um, yet I could never click with physics. So, so in a way, you know, um, I may be your your harshest critic. Somebody who, <laughs> who naturally loves physics may have done this interview and 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 not touched oh, on 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 any of the points that 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 that, that I'm making. So I so I hope people take that with a grain of salt. That I'm not well, trying to be negative. I I love your book. I love what you're doing. If you're my harshest critic, then I have really nothing to worry about, honestly. <laughs> okay. But uh, no, you, I mean you, you've given me some wonderful questions to think about. But I, I think that in in you know I think. Um, I like the fact that you're approaching the book with, with a, a very significant amount of skepticism, or at least a, a, an idea to actually really question the book and question it thoroughly about what it's what you know what what its intents are, what it's what the intended audience is, and how how well it functions and what it's doing. Right, I, I right. I really want people to be doing that. I, I you know, 
I want people to be reading the book. I want people to be disagreeing with parts of the book or agreeing with parts, but I want people to send me feedback about the book or write reviews on Amazon or whatever it is, you know, whether they like it or don't like it. You know, I, that this is what we teach. This is what we, this is what we as scientists want people to be doing, to be skeptical about the material they're being presented with and to really look at the material in depth and, and, be, and, and challenge it and be challenged by it. Um, as far as, as far as what you say about physics goes, um, you know, it, I don't think a lot of physicists, I think, will take the attitude that there are some people who can't learn physics or can't be taught physics or whatever you call it. I think that's a crummy attitude. I think yeah, I, yeah attitude. I, I think that's a cop out. Exactly. Um, I think that anyone can learn physics. I think that anyone can learn mathematics, honestly. Um, the point, though, is that teachers, I think, have to get it through their heads that it's not them teaching, it's the student that's learning. And that's really the important part of it. Um, once, you know, lectures don't do a lot. I like, you know, I, I'm, you know I, it's one of these things which is, is it's a little difficult for, for a professor to really get after a while. But the lectures, you know, when you, when you lecture to a classroom, it's something like ten to twenty percent. Something like ten to twenty percent of the material that you're lecturing about is actually being understood, and right. that's mm-hmm. sure. I, and a lot, I, you know. It, it, and initially, when I, you know, when I when I first really grasped that, it took us doing. You know, I, I talked about these conceptual exams. And I used to lecture. I thought I was good at lecturing. And we started giving these conceptual exams, and I started looking at my scores on them. I started thinking. You know, this is just depressing. But then, you know, I started talking with other people about what they what they were doing in their classrooms, and I realized, well, you know, what they're doing isn't that hard. They're just shifting things, you know, so that we do these other things. The students do group work. They they discuss the stuff. They discuss the concepts. They give you feedback. And I realized that that was actually a matter for hope in the classroom because. You know, it, it's, you know, in some sense, as a teacher, right, people, people have this idea of the teacher as delivering these brilliant lectures and explaining everything so well. But that's a view of the teacher as who the teacher is. The teacher having this ineffable ability to teach the subject. Whereas effective teaching is not who the teacher is, it's what the teacher does. Well, if if I may get on my soapbox, yes, Yes, go ahead, please, um, for a moment. I I think in our culture, certainly in Mm -hmm. the Western American culture that I grew up with, we have this notion that we like to deify Mm professions. So we make we make our doctors gods and our lawyers (laughs) gods and our teachers. Mm -hmm. You know, we turn them into gods, and 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 so we make everybody perfect. And unfortunately. In doing that, we abdicate our own responsibility mm-hmm. for learning um, to to these teachers. But these teachers aren't gods. They, you know, some are better than others, and they have different mm-hmm. skills in in different areas. And I really do believe that the future of education is people getting together, you know, in community 
and learning this stuff and learning mm-hmm. it in different ways that works for different people, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we all hear that some people are audio and some right. people are, are visual and kinesthetic and, and we're learning more and more about how the brain works. So there's a whole lot more to the, to learning than, you know, a teacher doing a, essentially a broadcast. Right. No, absolutely. Um, I, no arguments here. Absolutely not. Yeah. So, so let me ask you just, just two more questions um, because um, we do need to wind down here. But, sure. but so, so first of the last questions is, is there, is there a next book or other big project? Hey, hopefully a blog. <laughs> yeah, well, you've inspired me. I, I do want to start a blog now. Um, I, 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 think, I think your idea is just A1. Um, I do have another proposal at Princeton University Press. Um, yes. It's called Why Da Vinci's Machines Don't Work. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, so that, that was a fun one. This one actually originated from a class I was teaching um, to introductory students. Um, I, I've, I've been teaching, I've, I've taught now, I think, for three years in a row, um, a course called, called not, not last year, but a couple of years before that, a course called Galileo and the Birth of Modern Science. Galileo is a huge hero of mine. Um, I think that he was one of the most amazing scientists, one of the amazing, most amazing personas in all of history. But in order to teach this class, um, you have to kind of delve more deeply because you have to kind of understand, in order to understand Galileo, you have to kind of understand the historical context of the Renaissance as it was in Italy. And so this led me back to looking at you know, Galileo's forebears. And so I started looking at Da Vinci and looking at all these amazing things he did. And, and do not get me wrong, by the way. I think Da Vinci was also an amazing person. I, just, I, 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 I have enormous amount of respect for him. But if you look at his work, his work consists of a lot of projects that were started and never finished or never started and just exist only in his notebooks as these sort of wild speculations. He's got these, you know, the most obvious example is the flying machine. But there are other things as well, like war machines, or um, these. He, he had this huge statue that he was trying to build that never got finished. All these sorts of things that never got finished. And I think one of the reasons for that is that Galileo knew something that Da Vinci didn't. You know, you, you know n- n- nothing against Da Vinci here, because Da Vinci, you know, Galileo lived you know 150, 200 years after Da Vinci did. But Galileo understood the issue of scaling laws. You know, it, Galileo, I don't know how familiar you are with Galileo's work. Um, A his little. Last, his last book is called um, Dialogue Concerning Two New Sciences. And in that book, one of the two new sciences that he talks about is what we would call physics today. He talks about the basic underpinnings of mechanics. But the other new science is the science of scaling laws, how things Scale as you you know how how different properties of an object scale as you scale the dimension of an object. You know, for example, if you double the size of an object, its surface area goes up by a factor of four, and volume or its weight goes up by a factor of eight. So simple scaling relationships, right? You know, if if you know um, linear size goes by a factor of two, area goes by the square of the linear size of two squared four, volume and weight go up by a factor of two cubed eight. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at a lot of Da Vinci's inventions, a lot of them, I think, fail because of a failure to appreciate this issue. You know, a lot of his ideas were either, you know, things that were, would, you know, things that birds can do, you know, fly by flapping their wings or whatever, because 
their power to rate weight ratio is much higher than a human's metabolic power to weight ratio is. And there are good reasons in terms of physics and metabolism why that's so, but da Vinci wouldn't have understood that because, you know, again, he didn't, if he was born 200 years too early. Oh, interest. I, what? That, this is, this is fascinating. So, so I'm looking forward to another interview with you when, oh, you know, I mean, hopefully Princeton picks up the book. We, I, I just got, I just got um, reviewers comments back on the proposal and I think it's going to go through. I need to make a few, I need to make a number of changes to the original proposal, but you touch wood, it'll, it'll actually get accepted. But yeah. Okay. I've, I've got a real wood desk here. Yeah. Okay. I got, yeah. I'll do the same thing here. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. and let me ask you the, 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 the very final question. And this is, this is the one in, the, the one question I ask just about every interviewee, it might feel a little bit out of context, but I think it's a good sort of food for thought for, for as an end question for people who are listening to this podcast. What advice would you give to a parent whose child was struggling with math? And I say, and I say math and not <laughs> physics because I'm a math yeah. guy. Uh-huh. That's fine. Um, well, I think we, we, we touched on a little bit of this. Um, well, first of all, I will say this actually does hit pretty close to home because I was a lousy math student. Um, up until ninth grade, um, I got D's or F's in almost every math class that I took. But once I got to ninth grade and got beyond that, um, I think I got A's and B's in every math class that I took up through and including um, college. And it's kind of hard to say why there was this big flip around, except what we, we touched on, we mentioned about Good Lesser Bach. That was, in fact, the year Good Lesser Bach was published. Um, and so my parent, my father got a copy of the book and I started reading the book and I got really, really interested in the subject matter. Um, but you know, it does hit home because I was a lousy math student and, and my parents actually were struggling with this issue about, you know, the fact that my grades were so lousy that it, you know, it was jeopardizing, you know, it was substantially jeopardizing my ability to get into any college at all, not, not, you know, let alone a, a, a decent school. Uh, but it was, sorry. Um, in any event. Um, so I think one of the first things is something I touched, we, we discussed earlier on, which is that you have to make the assumption that everyone can learn mathematics. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you have to start with that baseline assumption that everyone can learn mathematics. Mathematics is not something that merely a privileged few can, can grasp. Number two, also, I think that there is a this tendency in our culture to confuse arithmetic with mathematics. Yep. You know, people mm-hmm. tend to think that, oh, you know, you're good at multiplying, so you must be a good mathematician. And I don't agree with that at all. I think actually most of the mathematicians I've known are pretty lousy at arithmetic, um, including some of the very best ones. Um, well, Einstein, right? There, there's yeah. a story about right. Einstein was doing some some really complicated formula, and they needed to, you know, he needed to bring an accountant into the room to help him <laughs> actually grind through the machinery. Right. right exactly. And and yeah. And so, um, I, I think that both. Well, number one, it, it's one of the things I think, which is kind of a one tricky part, of course, is that in in a lot of cases, the parents themselves are kind of afraid to approach the mathematics as well because they haven't learned it very well. They, 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 they themselves mm-hmm. didn't have very good teachers. Right. They themselves were very afraid to approach the subject. <laughs> so I think the parents getting rid of their own fears um, is also kind of an important part. Um, it's, it's tricky because students 
you know, my experience again, my experience over the last several years has been very um, instructive in that. And students typically learn from their peers much more than they learn from their instructors. Yep. And and students will also take a lot from things like the web more readily than they will take from their teachers or their parents. Also. Um. It, it, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, well, okay, let me, let me, let me approach this tangentially. Um, do you know Jim Tanton? Oh, ab- absolutely. He's one of my heroes. I've, I've interviewed him on my oh, podcast. Really? Okay. Yep. He's a very good, he's a very good friend of mine. Um, he's oh. at St. Mary's College. Um, he was here for a couple of years when I was, when I first started teaching. He left actually like my second or third year to go on to his career now, but. Um, well, he went to St. Mark's, right? Became became a high school teacher That's and right. now is, is yeah. with the MAA. We all thought he was crazy, but, but he, he was crazy. Like it, it turned out he was crazy like a fox. I mean, he was, you know, he, I, I think what he's done with, I think what he's done is just amazing. Well, what, what, well, what's also amazing that people may not be aware is that, of that is that he has a PhD from, from Princeton, Princeton in math. Yes, absolutely. He's, he's actually, he and I published a paper together. Um, he is one of the best mathematicians I've ever met. I mean, he's just, he is just amazingly sharp. Yep. And he's decided to devote his life to teaching high school students or teaching, you know, even younger students. I think that's just incredible. Yeah. No, um, he is. He is. He's brilliant, and I'm sure he's doing wonderful things for the MAA. Mm-hmm. But he has this, what I would probably first steer people to if they were having problems with their children is that he has these wonderful sets of exercises available on the web for learning math, mm-hmm. which taken a completely different direction. Yep. Than most. Uh, than most uh, high schools do. I mean, the biggest problem with textbooks, and you know, I, I, I was looking, I was, I was looking at my daughter, I was helping my daughter with a geometry text, with geometry uh, homework, and um, you know, they, they had this set of problems in which um, they were very kind of cookbook approach problems. You know, they said, well, you know, um, if this angle is X. And this angle is y, and this angle is twenty degrees. What is the sum of the angles x plus y plus two times z, or something like that? Right. And it's not an approach which is get which I think approaches the subject of geometry very well because you're not thinking about geometry as geometry. You're thinking about it in terms of finding the values of these quantities in terms of arithmetic, rather than thinking. Oh, you know, got parallel lines, right? Parallel lines never intersect. That always true, right? Maybe we'll put them on a globe. Well, right, right, yeah, 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 sure, sure. Non, globe, non-Euclidean, sure. Them. Right, put them on a satellite, they won't. Or you've got a triangle here. Okay, what can I say about you know? Um, I've got a triangle and a circle. Let's measure this angle. Oh, that's the right angle. Let's let's draw another triangle in the semicircle, right? Ooh, that's another right angle. Are, are those always going to be a right angle? If, if that's true, why is it always going to be a right angle? You're not approaching geometry as something which can be intrinsically interesting. You're approaching it as something which you have to kind of, you know, get the numbers out of. And I think that you have to approach these subjects as things that are, that you can speculate about, that you can actually think about in terms of open-ended questions rather than saying, we must get this answer out. I think you need to have some sort of approach which leaves a little bit to the imagination of the student. I think that's what Jim does really, really well, better than anyone else I've met. Um, 
And um, he, he gave a talk actually recently at our college about exploding numbers. I think he's got a, a worksheet on that, which is just bold. Every, you know, we had people there with, you know, who, were, who were teachers in the math department, who were you know, faculty members of the math department, just blown away by this talk. Because you know, he was showing things that no one had thought about before in terms of either approaching arithmetic or teaching, you know, or teaching concepts in arithmetic. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. But I, I think that I think one of the important things is to stress that these subjects can be approached, I think, kind of in an, again, maybe I'm not saying this very well, but kind of in a way in which the answers, you know, the textbooks tell you, you have to find these answers. But the textbooks don't ask you to, I think, speculate or think about what those answers are or what those answers mean in any sort of meaningful way. And I think, I think that's an important part to put in the process. One of the things is I'm not entirely sure how, you know, I, I know kind of how to do that in physics when I'm, ta- when I'm teaching a physics class. I'm not exactly sure how to do those mathematics, although maybe if I prepared a, a subject in it, I might, I might actually come to better conclusions. Is that helpful at all? I don't, I don't know if that's helpful. What I just said. Hello? I think it's food for thought. Okay. And 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 I and I love your your, your plug for, for for Jim Tanton and and his work. I got to meet him at a when I was working at um, um, for Wolfram Research once upon a time. Oh, okay. there was a conference in London, and he came, and and I got to meet him in person. And um, yeah, so so I think lots and lots of food for thought here in mm-hmm. in this interview, mm-hmm. and. And I hope that everybody picks up a copy of the book and no, and and enjoys it. And whether or not they're intimidated by the <laughs> by the equations, um, I think it I think it's a wonderful start towards people thinking that there's that there's something interesting going on in the science fiction and in these fantasy movies. And and maybe on your blog, you can <laughs> you you can you can, yeah. you can maybe you can engage readers. To you know, write guest articles on movies and books sure. and yeah. um, and and such and and throw out you know, throw out challenges. Is this plausible? Oh, that's a good idea, actually. Yeah. Is this plausible? Why or why not? Well, you give me usually give me a lot to think about as well. I mean, because that's, that's I think that's a very those are very good ideas. Um, okay. Well, All right. So very good. So thank so for- so thank you. One final thing I wanted to say is if people are googling for your book Wizards, Aliens and Starships, um it's it's written under your name Charles Adler, but we've mm-hmm. been going by Chuck, but I but go look for the title. You'll find the book. It's on Amazon. I'm sure it's everywhere. And thank you Chuck for for a great interview. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you All very right. much.